Rock is Lit. Welcome to Rock is Lit, the podcast that takes listeners on a quest to find the very best rock novels and explore the propulsive energy and raw power of these stories about music, the people who make it, and the characters who love it. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook at Christy Alexander Hallberg and Twitter and Instagram at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at www.christyalexanderhallberg.com. On this episode, it's all about Elvis. Chris Charlesworth is here to talk about his novel, Caught in a Trap, The Kidnapping of Elvis, a story that finds the king of rock and roll in a most unroyal situation. Later, Stephanie Myers, co-host of the podcast Stephanie and Stephanie Talk Tunes, another proud member of the Pantheon podcast family, drops by to relay some actual kidnap plots against Elvis Presley, so stick around for that. But first, we're joined by Chris Charlesworth. Chris began writing about music in 1968 as a reporter on The Telegraph in Argus, the evening paper published in Bradford in Yorkshire, England. Over the next year or so, Chris began to review albums and concerts and did a few interviews by phone, including one with Jimmy Page, talking about his hopes for a new group he'd formed with the unusual name of Led Zeppelin. From May 1970 to February 1977, Chris worked as Melody Maker's news editor, and in 1973, their U.S. correspondent based firstly in L.A. and then for three years, New York. He interviewed just about every major rock performer of the era, from John Lennon and Paul McCartney on downwards. He became quite close to a few groups, most notably The Who and Slade, and was also in at the beginning of the New York CBGB scene, befriending Debbie Harry before she and Chris Stein formed Blondie. After Melody Maker, Chris hung on in New York, working for Sir Productions, which managed the Who's U.S. Affairs, Rolling Stones tours, and also Leonard Skinner. The Skinner plane crash in late 1977 put the kibosh on that, so he came back to the U.K. and got a job at RCA Records in London, doing PR for, among others, David Bowie. He left RCA to become a freelance writer and wrote books, three of which were published by Omnibus Press, for whom he became editor in 1983. He has written 12 books, among them biographies of The Who, David Bowie, Deep Purple, Slade, Cat Stevens, and Elvis, and edited hundreds more. Chris is now semi-retired, but has a music blog called Just Backdated, and does odd bits of editing work for anyone who asks. Welcome to the show, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we start the interview, let's find out a little bit about your musical tastes and experiences. Let's play a set of five questions. What's the first album or record you ever bought? The first one I was bought, as opposed to given, I think was uh, The Fabulous Style of the Everly Brothers in about 1958. But the first album I was given was actually Elvis's Golden, Elvis Presley's Golden Hits, or Elvis Presley's mm-hmm. Golden Records. The one of him on the front wearing his gold uh, lame suit, if you remember it. Uh, kind of an orange background. Um, that was one Christmas. I guess it would have been Christmas 57 or 58. Um, not quite sure. One of those two Christmases. Okay. I was very keen on Elvis from an early age. Mm-hmm. I liked the way he looked as much as I liked the music, I think, because he looked so totally different from anyone I'd ever seen before. Right. Yeah. I like the way he looked too. <laughs> Santa Claus brought me that very same album, by the way. So we have that in common. 
You must be much younger than me, though. Uh, I'm 52, and Santa Claus brought me that album. Oh, we didn't buy it when it came out. (laughs) It had just come out when I got it. Right, yeah, this would have been when I was probably seven or eight. Oh, well, about the same as me, then. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I was into Elvis from a very young age as well. What was your most memorable live music experience? Probably the most memorable one, even now, to all these years, was probably when my dad took me to see the Beatles in 1963. Mm. It was um, at Bradford, which is a city in the north of England, and it was December 63 when... um, well, this was at the height of Beatlemania in the UK, just before uh, it, it broke out in America, of course. It, it was about six months before it all happened in America. And it was uh, an extraordinary 25-minute performance because I don't think I heard a note they played or a word they sang. <laughs> um, but it was just the, uh, the atmosphere in this theatre. It was my dad and I... Uh, and and about uh, eighteen hundred screaming girls. Um, I was <laughs> I was about five rows back on Paul's side, and like everyone else, we stood up as soon as they came on. A parade of other acts had been on before the Beatles. It was a what they called a package tour, a package show in those days. So about four or five other acts came on and did two songs each. Then there was an interval, and the Beatles closed the show. <laughs> The curtains came back and the place exploded. There they were, John, Paul, George and Ringo in their shiny suits and Cuban heel boots singing Twist and Shout. Oh, it might have been Twist and Shout at the end. I, I, I've got the, the set list written down somewhere. I looked it up many years later. But that was the thing that switched me on completely. But that was a, a one-off experience. I never saw the Beatles again and they didn't play much comparatively speaking. There were loads of other great rock gigs I saw. One of the most memorable was the last time I saw The Who with Keith on drums, which was actually at Jacksonville in August 1976, another knockout show. And uh, like the last time I saw The Real Who, and that one I'll always remember as well. I'm sure. If you had the opportunity to interview an artist or a band, who would it be and what's one question you would ask? Now, that's a hard question for you because you've interviewed everybody already. Well, the answer would obviously be Elvis. Yes, yes, yes. Um, no, nobody nobody did really interview Elvis at any length, as you probably know, and which moves me on to the book a bit, but I'll get on to that later. Uh, Colonel Parker kept him away from interviews uh, in order to create this sort of um, vacuum around Elvis, which uh, which which actually probably wasn't a good thing in the long term. But no one ever talked to Elvis seriously for any length of time and got it down on tape. I mean, they asked him where he bought his clothes and, you know, things like that. What's his favorite color? Pink. Yeah, I don't know. But, uh, but nobody ever sat down and talked to him about his musical roots or, or his life or his reflections on the fame, the extraordinary fame he had. Um, so it's a great mystery, really, about what was going on in Elvis's head. Lots of people have tried to imagine it, including me. But I would love to have sat down and interviewed Elvis. I tried um, in 1973 when I was living in Los Angeles and uh, working as Melody Maker's 
uh, American editor. I actually wrote a letter to Parker, but I will get this, this later, uh, asking for it. I didn't even get a reply, but right. at least I tried. You know? well, what would you ask him if you had the opportunity to talk with Elvis right now? Oh, what would I ask him? I said, what does it feel like being Elvis Presley? <laughs> What's it like? I mean, what would I ask him? I'd ask him about his musical roots. I'd ask him what the first music he ever heard was, right? And whether he was conscious of mixing, you know, rhythm and blues to, uh, and country music and creating rock and roll. I, I, I'd ask him about what, what, what he felt he was doing when he was in the Sun Studio making That's All Right. I, I, I'd ask him that, you know? And I'd ask him, if I dared, why he made all those crap films. But... <laughs> But I'd leave that question to the end, you know. <laughs> I think that's a, a good strategy. Yeah, it's a shame that, that nobody ever had the opportunity to really have a sit down with him and, and have an in-depth interview. No, it's, it's a, it's a, the odd thing is I don't know whether, I don't know whether this was Elvis's decision. It was, certain, it was certainly Parker's decision, but did Elvis right. agree with that decision? Or he must have known that every other rock star, even the enigmatic ones like Bob Dylan. I mean, everybody gave interviews. Uh, you know, Sinatra gave interviews. Everybody, absolutely every popular entertainer in every medium gave interviews, did some press of some sort. Uh, but Elvis was unique in that he never did. Um, right. Yeah. No, he had to have been aware of that. He had to have been aware of, of publications like Rolling Stone and Melody. I'm Mason sure he was. On I'm on. sure he was. And I, sure. I, I like to think that even if I had gone through to him, he might have liked to give an interview to someone from Melody Maker uh, just because he never came to the UK and he owed it to his English fans, you know, his British fans to to, to yeah. talk to them, even if it was just to say thanks very much for supporting me or something like that, you, you know. I mean, yeah. some English DJs, um, among them the notorious Jimmy Savile, went to Vegas and met him a few times and may have recorded the odd quote oh. for a radio show, you know, the, hi, it's Elvis here, great to be here, and here's the next track, you know, but nothing serious <laughs> was said. Um mm -hmm. Well, you never know, Chris. He may have read an article that you wrote in Melody Maker. He may have done, man. That would be interesting. Maybe he mm -hmm. did. He might not have liked it either. But <laughs> <laughs> What's on your playlist now? Well, on my playlist for the, for the past couple of weeks has been an old group called Lindisfarne for the simple reason that I've been asked to write, to write sleeve notes for a box set of Lindisfarne. So they were old friends of mine from the early 70s. You may recall Lindisfarne, a quintet from the northeast of England, where, where the Geordies, as they call them, from up there. And, um, and I've been playing their records a lot over the past uh, two or three weeks while I've been writing 5,000 words about them for this box set. So that's been on my playlist. Um, tonight, as we were having dinner earlier on, we were listening to The Smiths. I've oh, always liked okay. The Smiths a lot. Well, you've written your own rock novel, which we're going to talk about in just a second. But which band or artist would you like to see featured in a rock novel that you've you've not seen before? Uh, there hasn't been a rock novel about The Who. Mm. Um, I think The Life of Keith Moon would make a fantastic novel, though. Mm -hmm. um, if you could, if you, but, but that, it would be too over the top, I think. Uh, people would say, oh, that never happened. Yeah, you'd have to tone that down. Yes, you would. <laughs> Let's take a short break and we'll be back with Chris Charlesworth. 
You don't want to miss the last segment of the show when Stephanie Myers joins Rock is Lit to talk about actual kidnap plots against Elvis. Well, that's all right, Mama. That's all right for you. That's all right, Mama. Just anyway you do, that's all right. That's all right. This is Chris Charlesworth, and you're listening to Rocky's Lit. And we're back with Chris Charlesworth, whose novel Caught in a Trap, The Kidnapping of Elvis, is the focus of today's episode. And yes, it is a story about a fictional plot to kidnap Elvis Presley, but more on that in a second. Chris, my first question has to do with genre. You've had such an amazing career as a rock journalist. What inspired you to switch genres and write a novel? Simply because I'd never tried it before. And I had this crazy idea about Elvis being kidnapped. Uh, there was an old, there was a book by an, an old author. I don't even know whether he's alive now. He's an American author, and he wrote a book called The Fan Club, which was a fictitious account of an attractive female actor actress being kidnapped uh, by four men whose whose intentions were very dishonourable, to say the least. Right. Um, now, this was a fictitious celebrity being kidnapped. And I read that book once, and I thought, well, that could be transformed into a real celebrity, but only a dead one, obviously, because you couldn't have a live one, really, uh, in case the celebrity complained. Yeah. <laughs> um, I got the, the original German of, a, of an idea from that book. Right. Had you written any fiction before? No, none, none at all. No, I've written thousands of magazine articles. Oh, yeah. Uh, and these books on, on The Who and, and Townsend and Deep Purple and Slade and Cat Stevens and Elton. And, uh, I, if, I did a, a, a small one on Elvis, um, which actually was a, a, just a 32-page thing that accompanied a, a cassette of his music that was put out by RCA. Um they wanted a ten thousand word bio of Elvis, so I did that. But um, but no, I, I hadn't written any fiction at all. I read a lot, but hadn't written. What did any. you find the most challenging about writing this novel? Um, I didn't know my way around Memphis, so I bought a guidebook to Memphis because I didn't want to get any facts wrong uh, in terms of streets and you know in Memphis and, and things like that. Um, so that was quite challenging to make sure that it was plausible from that point of view. Right. Um, it was reasonably easy, easy to find a period in Elvis's life where it might have occurred. Though I did have to research that. And I got a book that was a chronology of his life. And I found a period where, where, which was ideal for, for the month-long period that's covered in the book. Uh, and it happily coincided with Elvis having to cancel uh, a season in Las Vegas to illness, and then, and 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 then subsequently spending time in hospital, then convalescing before he went back to to to, to Las Vegas. So that was the obvious time, but I t it took a bit of a while to find that. Um, but that was a, a bit of a challenge. But the the, the most the biggest challenge of the whole book was one scene in it, about halfway through, where Elvis is confronted with one of the three kidnappers, who's, who's a girl, the wife of one of the other kidnappers, uh, and 
uh, and she's a huge Elvis fan, right? And so I didn't know how to play that scene. I didn't know whether she'd freak out or whether she'd be delighted or what she would say if, if you were, what uh, uh, someone in that position would say if they were confronted with this idol of theirs that they idolized since they were 10 years old or whatever. Um, and suddenly, in, the cir- in these circumstances, how would you behave? Because so it was quite difficult to, to do that scene. And in fact, since we're mentioning it, I got a big case of writer's block because I couldn't write that scene. And I set the book aside for a long time, 10 years. 10 years? I started, yes, didn't tell you this, Oh, did my I? God. I started this book. I started this book in the early 2000s. Okay. Right? And I wrote the first five or so chapters then. And I was working full time then. And I had two youngish children at home. And I was doing it in my lunch break at work. I'd have a sandwich at my office and I'd come up with a bit more. And it took me, I don't know, four or five months to do the first five chapters. Oh, and I wrote an outline of the story. The mother kept changing. They always do, I think, with fiction. Mm -hmm. Things change. Things don't seem plausible. That seem plausible ones. So things change. But I had written a chapter breakdown. And then I got to this pivotal scene. (laughs) I didn't know where to go. So I set the book aside and I barely touched it. For 10 years. Wow. And then I retired in 2016. I knew as soon as I retired, I was going to work on it again. And I was going to get through Mm -hmm. this bloody writer's block and do this scene. So I went back to the book. I reread every word I'd written up to that point. And then it occurred to me that the chapter following, the, the moment when this woman walks into the cabin where Elvis is being kidnapped, the chapter following that was going to be the confrontational scene. And then I thought to myself, no, I'll move that a bit later. I'll stick some other text, some other element of the book in the middle. So this will keep the reader on tender hooks about what happens for another 15 or so pages or 20 pages, however many it was. Then... I'll go back to that scene. And then it all worked. It worked much better. And I was really into it again. Really unbelievable. And I I got other ideas. I got the whole idea about Mm -hmm. Richard Nixon, right? Um, And and Parker's, you know, Dutch heritage and and all that. That that hadn't occurred to me before. Um, That occurred to me, right? And I was really looking forward to writing the scenes where Elvis and his kidnappers befriend one another. The, the Stockholm Syndrome, as they call it, sets in. And then I could sort of bring out Elvis as a real person. I also was, was I had, and I, I talk a bit about what Elvis might be thinking. So going back to what we were talking about earlier, about Elvis never having been given an interview, what I was trying to do was to put in the book what Elvis might have said had he ever been interviewed. Mm-hmm. So even though it's all hypothetical, obviously, um, this is what I was trying to do during the second half of the book, give Elvis a voice, the voice he never had when he was alive. Let you go, never knowing 
struck me about Caught in a Trap is that a lot of it reads as though it were nonfiction, which is a testament to your talent as a journalist. Right from the start, the prologue establishes not only the plot, but also the tone of the book. It's almost like a reporter's account of where he was in that period of his life. It's very matter-of-fact and chock-full of information about Elvis and his career. You've already mentioned some of the research you did for the novel. What other kinds of research did you do? Well, I did a lot of research. Uh, I, I, you know the two Peter Guralnik books, uh, Last Train to Memphis and uh, what's it called, Careless Love, the, 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 the two big, fat, that's the definitive biography. Well, I've read that at least twice. I, I, I read the book by, what's her name, Alana? Yeah. About, about, about Parker and Elvis. Um, forgot that, uh, that's a famous book that, um, that, that was the first one, I think, to reveal... Uh, his his Dutch heritage, right? I've got I've got all these Elvis books on my shelves upstairs, and another book which was really good was Priscilla's book, Elvis and um, Me. Uh, Elvis and Me. Mm-hmm. That that was very helpful uh, when I talk about when Elvis is musing, if you like, on his relationship with his wife mm-hmm. um, and their lack of a sex life. If mm-hmm. you like. I mean, so, and, and, and Priscilla lets it all hang out in that book. I was quite amazed how, how, how candid she was. Um, so that was very helpful. And then I've got two or three of these more factual books about Elvis that give dates and times and everything of, of events. So I was very... Um, I was very precise, at least I tried to be very precise with the dates, so so that it so that it was plausible, and and like like as you say, the very beginning, that that, that prologue is a reporter's account of something that happened precisely as it did, right? And then I imagine what might have been happening in the hotel, right, where Elvis is sick and. And, and he did do two or three shows before he cancelled the rest of the season. So that's all accurate. Obviously, I'm making up what happened backstage and in his hotel room between him and his then-girlfriend, Linda Thompson, who, but it, she was his girlfriend then. I, I, I got all those facts right. And then when Elvis uh, kind of muses on his life when he's, you know, stuck there on his own and he's thinking about his life, all that was as accurate as I could get it. Um, and that information came from the books by Garalik and, and others. So uh, I, I, so that any Elvis fan who reads a lot about him will know that, that, so, that, that that's true, right? So it's a mixture of fact and fiction in a way. Let's go back to the time the novel is set. It's October 1975, and you've already talked about why you chose that that time to set the novel. So what else was going on in 1975? Because I, I think it's worth noting that Elvis turned 40 in 1975, and by all accounts, he was not happy about it. So what else was going on in that year that made him kind of a, a prime candidate for the action that takes place in your story? Well, um, it, was a, it was a low period for him, in fact. Um, 
his his records weren't selling very much. Um, I think he was having financial difficulties. This is referred to in the book. He was spending more than he was earning. His relationship with with his manager Parker was on the skids. Um, he'd fallen out with Priscilla, or Priscilla had left him anyway, and taken their daughter to live in in, in Los Angeles with with his karate teacher. I think at that time, right? Um, and Elvis was surrounded by yes men. This is the Memphis Mafia, as they were called, who were at his beck and call. And he was almost like the king with no clothes because um, uh, they did. He had a terrible temper, uh, and they did whatever uh, he, he told them to do. And no one ever criticized him. Um, his father was a fairly spineless individual who'd, who'd lived off Elvis ever since Elvis became the Elvis in big letters, if you know what I mean. Um, the only person who'd ever uh, could talk down to him would, would, would have been his mother, who died, of course, uh, in 1958, I think, was it? And, um, and Parker. But him and Parker weren't getting along at all. And Parker was squandering Elvis's money on the gaming tables. So the whole Elvis Incorporated uh, uh, industry, if you like, was was it was in a bad way at that time? Um, Elvis had only two years to live. In fact, not that anyone knew it. Um, I try in the book to posit the theory that this kidnapping didn't do him any harm health-wise. That it, it it might actually have given him a jolt. It was probably too late for him to get the jolt that he needed, but. I, I try to make the point that Elvis, deep down inside, longed to be an ordinary person, or, or at least to taste what ordinariness would, would have been like. Um, uh, I, think, I think I'm right in, in saying that putting on a disguise and walking into a shop and buying something himself without being recognised and without causing a scene would have been a sort of a dream for him. Um, I don't know whether this is true. I am speculating, obviously, that he'd quite like to walk into a restaurant with a date and order a burger and chips and Coke and whatever and not have everyone stare at him. And so this is, is part of my concept for that for those final chapters, if you like. Elvis is an ordinary person. And, and what would... What, could he... Could he do this. And, uh, well, I won't say what happens, obviously, but... Well, not only do you explore what Elvis might have been like had he broken out of that Memphis Mafia bubble, you also sort of break him down from the star we all know to, to his most basic human form. I mean, you've got him in overalls, and at times he's crying because he's, you know, begging for his release, and and... At times, he's sweeping the floor. It's it's really taken him off of that pedestal. Well, I wasn't trying to do him a disfavor by that, though I was pointing out that when he was once all um, once all the king's court had been stripped away, um, and um, he may well have had bullying tendencies, my Elvis, if he could 
bully all those people that worked for him, and probably women too, right? You know, uh, and he was so almighty and powerful, right? That once all that is stripped away, I think you'd find that no matter who you are, you know, powerful people, if suddenly it's all gone, then then they're a bit of an emotional wreck, right? Uh, and this is how I'm trying to portray Elvis in that scene. Um, he does recover his composure um, slowly but surely um, during the rest of the book. But that particular that particular point when he realizes his predicament, he's he's shit scared. You, you know, uh, he, he's also he also doesn't know whether these kidnappers uh, are, are going to kill him or not. You know, but then he's he's he he. He, he comes to the realization that, that he's he's more valuable alive to them than he is dead. So two of the kidnappers that they're both ex-soldiers, and so they are tough guys, really tough guys. They would have made better security guards than Elvis's real security guards, I think. And they plan the kidnapping very, very precisely. Oh, it's very strategic. Yes. And then, the, and then there's the reaction of the people to whom Elvis is close. There's a, there's a sense with this, as I, I refer to it as a kind of a stripping down. There's a sense that, because Elvis, as a person in real life, was such a doomed character. There's a feeling in the novel that he might have had a chance for redemption. That what, the, what happened in this instance where he is kidnapped and and he doesn't have any authority anymore he doesn't take as many drugs he has to really look at himself and think about things that he's really not had to before so you get a sense there's a chance that he could have turned it all around and and I don't want to say what happens I don't want to give anything away but but it's interesting that what it seemed to take was this incredibly this act that got him absolutely out of his comfort zone. And that was the only way, to, just to get him away from that world that he was in. Yeah, um, the shock of it all. Um, um, yeah. I, I, I tried to imply that it, it, it might have been the, re, the remaking of Elvis, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't, obviously. I couldn't, you know, I'd have to create a whole... Is, is still alive and you know kind of thing which uh, which would be stupid um but th- there was a sense that i think i i imply a little bit of that that for a while he was he was more humble and a, a nicer person to be around yeah but he, he soon fell back into yeah. his old ways um so uh, and I, I i also try to imply that He's taken away from all the drugs he was <laughs> as well um yeah. and after being kidnapped for a while, he he's not as dependent on those drugs as he was when they first snatched him. Right? Uh, this is just yeah. a subtle little undercurrent in it. It's not a big deal in the story. But what I'm trying to imply that if if instead of being kidnapped for the period of time he was, it was ten times longer, then um, he might have got ten times better. <laughs> so shifting gears just a little bit. I have not seen the new Boss Lerman movie about Elvis, but I gather it focuses a lot on Elvis's relationship with Colonel Parker. You wrote a review of the movie in your blog, Just Backdated. What do you think the film got right? And what do you think it got wrong about Elvis? Some of the things it gets right are incredibly right because um, there's, there's, a, there's an almost uh, 
fixation on getting some small details right. The clothes he wears, the, the scene uh, with, with, with the light, the windows in one shot where he's playing a piano, um, the note paper that's got boxcar enterprises on it, which was Parker's company. These little details are all very, very good. But some of the... Uh, some of the more sweeping things. I don't think Priscilla ever got Elvis into some form of rehab or tried to. That's implied in the film. Oh, um, really? If she did, she didn't mention it in her book. Yeah. And you would have thought she would have done, wouldn't you, right? right? So that's one thing which is like, I thought, well, that's way off, right? I had no idea that Elvis was the best mate in Memphis was B.B. King. Uh, that's kind of implied. Um then there is this whole business about Parker being threatened with deportation for his being an illegal immigrant, uh, unless he got Elvis to tone his, you know, act down to, to stop girls screaming at him and behaving lewdly or whatever, or, or that Elvis would end up in jail for 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 behaving lewdly in public. This was all way over the top. However, I have to say that some of the in concert scenes uh, in the film were really great. Mm. This yeah, I forgot his name. Now. He did. He did a. He did a great job of imitating Elvis. Okay. Um, and Tom Hanks makes a, a, a thoroughly good evil Tom Parker. Uh-huh. And you you do the the film really hinges on the relationship between Elvis and Parker, and El and Parker comes across as this Machiavellian scheming. Um, lying fraudster who regards Elvis, as he does in my book, as being a goose that lays golden eggs. And um, that's all he is, right? He has absolutely no concept of Elvis's art. There's no interest in his music, no interest whatsoever in, um, in improving Elvis as a performer, or as an artist, or as an actor, uh, hence the schlock films. But what I'm saying is Parker did not care about how awful the films were as long as they made money. And the, the interesting thing about the film, the, 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 the TV special that he did in 1968 for the Singer Special, as it's referred to, Parker wanted that to be a Christmas show, um, with Elvis dressed as Santa Claus singing Silent Night, Now Come All Ye Faith. Right? Oh, God. Um, and um, and Parker sold that concept to the company that was sponsoring the the TV special, right? But Elvis under went against Parker's wishes there, and him and the producer of the show, a man called Steve Binder, who who's mentioned in my book. This some of this is mentioned in my book as well. Um, sort of conspired against Parker and created the show that he did, which was a huge renaissance for Elvis. Elvis proved that he knew more about managing his career, if you like, certainly artistically, than, than, than Parker did. And, and Parker was made to look a fool, although Parker realised that Elvis was right and jumped on the bandwagon and said, right, let's, uh, the films have stopped making money, the soundtrack albums have stopped selling, so let's play live again. So off they went to Las Vegas, and for the next, you know, for the rest of his life, Elvis performed live. Uh, to start with, incredibly well, fantastic, and then that slowly deteriorated as the years went by. But again, I think Parker overworked Elvis, put him on the road, 
um, on, on on tours around around the country, around America. Um, schlepping around another show, another show, another show, and mostly, interesting enough, in what you might call secondary markets. Um, he um, Elvis tended to avoid the big cities. He, he played New York for a long time. He didn't play Chicago. He didn't play Los Angeles. He played the smaller cities that had halls that held fifteen thousand people for basketball arenas. You know. Um, because he wanted to keep Elvis away from the press somehow. And he knew there were enough fans in these places to come and see him. So why bother sticking Elvis on stage at Madison Square Garden, um, uh, where all the critics are there to, to, to write about him? Why not stick him on in some godforsaken town in Nebraska that nobody's ever heard of, but still has a 15,000-seater hall, um, which they'll sell out? Uh, so, you know, and it's not that far from Memphis anyway. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, there were some big shows. I know he did do the Garden, and and, and I know he did do the LA Forum, and of course he did the big show from Hawaii, right? But um, but but generally speaking, most of the shows were in what you might call secondary markets. Um, and then there was this, the, the, all the all the all the Las Vegas shows, which were great to start with, but then they deteriorated as well. And it is suggested in the film, and may well be true, that um, Parker was in so much hock to the to the to what to, to whoever owned the, the Las Vegas uh, hotel he played the Hilton International, um, which was probably run by mafioso types or at least uh, unpleasant characters, right? That Parker was threatened that uh, you know you keep Elvis playing here, we'll give you unlimited credit at the tables, but if Elvis plays anywhere else in Las Vegas, then we're gonna call in the debt, and when they call in the debt, who knows what might happen? You know. So. So, so that, that unpleasantness was going on. And this is hinted at in the film. I think a lot of people don't know that Elvis never played out of the United States because Colonel Parker was an illegal alien. This is another theme in the film, and it's hinted at in my book as well. I mentioned it without, uh, without laboring the point too much. But because Parker couldn't get a passport, he, didn't, he never left um, America. I mean, go to Hawaii and... Uh, but Elvis never played outside of the USA. Uh, and the reason why it's suggested is because Parker, Parker wanted to be there all the time because he wanted to sell stuff, you know. Because sure. he sold Elvis merchandise everywhere he went. Um, and he didn't, he didn't want Elvis to go to London or Paris or what have you with another promoter because those promoters might well talk Elvis into... Um, into becoming managed by someone else. Or Elvis might see how much money he was making in London and Paris and contrasting that with how much money he was making in the USA or how much he was giving to his manager in the USA and think, well, what's, yeah. you know, and realize that Parker was ripping him off. So who knows? Um, but so that's why Elvis never appeared live outside of America, I think. I think he wanted to. It's it's suggested in the film that he wanted to, um, and I suggest it in my book. Yeah. And uh, Parker said it was security reasons. That's what that's the that's what he says in the film. Well, we can't have, get the security. Well, he said, well, the Queen can you know appear in London. You know, why can't I? And you know, so, so but Parker always managed to hoodwink Elvis into uh, into believing what he told him. Well, it's a really interesting premise for a novel, so I'm glad we've got a chance to talk about it. Chris, thanks so much for being on the show. 
Check out Chris's blog, Just Backdated, at justbackdated.blogspot.com. You can find many of Chris's articles, interviews, and reviews on www.rocksbackpages.com. We'll take another short break, then we'll be joined by Stephanie Myers of Stephanie and Stephanie Talk Tunes podcast to talk about actual kidnap plots involving Elvis Presley. Back in a moment. We're caught in a trap. I can't walk out because I love you too much, baby. And we're back with more Rock is Lit. This episode's music guru is also a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Welcome Stephanie Myers, co-host of the podcast Stephanie and Stephanie Talk Tunes, which she co-hosts with Stephanie Pena. The show shares the memories and the stories connected to the music that shaped their lives. You can find all of their episodes at stephaniestalktunes.com or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for coming on Rock is Lit, Stephanie. Thanks for having me, Christy. Excited to be here. So in this episode, I've been talking with Chris Charlesworth about his novel, Caught in a Trap, in which Elvis Presley is kidnapped and held for ransom in 1975. So of course, that never happened. It's fiction. It's a novel. But there actually were kidnapping threats to Elvis Presley at various times in his career. And I want to talk to you about that. But first, Stephanie and Stephanie Talk Tunes did a two-part episode on Elvis, which was fantastic. I listened to all of it. So before we get into crazy real-life Elvis kidnapping plots, what are some of the, the highlights you want to share with listeners from that episode of your podcast? Yeah, so glad you enjoyed. It's a great uh, question. We had a lot of fun um, recording that two-part episode, really delving into fandom, and we really wanted to separate the facts from the myths when it came to Elvis. There's so much out yeah. there. Um, we delve a little bit into where his origins came from, right? And just mm-hmm. what did he appropriate from the beginning? Who did he kind of borrow his uh, influences from? Um, and I talk a little bit in the episode about being a fan as a, since I was a kid. Um, but, you know, we just talk about what led him to become Elvis Presley. What did that look like? On to real life Elvis kidnapping threats. What do we know about this, Stephanie? Yeah, so, you know, there's a really good primary source that I like relating to the threats that were happening to Elvis, and that's Priscilla Presley's memoir, her autobiography, Elvis and Me. And she outlines just the pressures Elvis was up against, um, how he became really paranoid. I think folks probably know he had a store of guns and combine that with kind of various medications he was taking, and it amplified everything. Um, But she also said in the light of that, the renewed fame brought renewed dangers and offstage he could be guarded, but on stage he was this walking mm-hmm. target. And with that came real threats. And one night his guards were tipped off that a woman in the audience was carrying a gun and a threatened to shoot Elvis. Elvis insisted on going on stage, but he was instructed to actually stay downstage, make yourself a smaller target. And his guards were poised to jump right. in front of him. If there was any suspicious movement, And in the audience were his guard with FBI agents who were there to, uh, to make sure nothing happened. And I, you know, and I read that and I just had to say, as an aside here, this is a time obviously before there were metal detectors before shows, because I really doubt that in this day and age, there would be this kind of quote, wait and see approach. Exactly. um, (laughs) In the middle of the show, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, that, you know, didn't he go on stage packing heat for that show? 
Yeah, yeah. And I believe it was multiple shows. I believe he had a oh, wow. small gun that he carried in his um, in his shoe um, down kind of in the bottom of his jumpsuit. I think he was known for doing that in his Vegas days. Oh, God. So, so this was not like a one-time thing. He actually went on stage with a gun on a regular basis. Gotta love yeah, that. Yeah, right? And I noticed there is a little <laughs> visual illusion in the Baz Luhrmann movie to that, too. Of Elvis kind of reaching for really? his shoe okay. while on stage. He's like, oh boy, oh, this guy, man. <laughs> wow. Are there any other instances where there were kidnapping threats against Elvis? The really interesting one, and I don't know if everybody knows about this one, but the attempts to uh, steal his body after he died and uh, three men mm-hmm. were arrested in connection with that plot a uh, really kind of a scary and crazy thing. Um, but he died August 16th, 1977. And these men were arrested later that month. Um, they had staked out the cemetery, Forest Hill Cemetery. Mm-hmm. And because of that, Elvis was moved along with his mother, Gladys, to Graceland um, as their final resting place. And they got yeah. special permission um, from the city to do that. Um, realizing that there's were these threats happening. So uh, a pretty sad thing to say he was tracked in life, but also in death. Yeah. Folks were wanting to kidnap him. Cool. Right. Yeah, I've been to Graceland back in 1992 awesome. and, and seen the meditation garden. And it's, it's really, that yeah. there's something really serene about the meditation garden. And Elvis is buried there, his mother, and I think his father, as I recall, and his grandmother. Yeah. And have you heard of the um, the book by Gary Lindbergh, Letters from Elvis? It was published in 2018. This is fascinating, talking about kidnapping plots. So this book is published as nonfiction. It's supposed to be based on the actual letters that Elvis and actually three of his friends, Harry Belafonte, Tom Jones, and Marlon Brando. It's supposed to be a collection of letters that they all wrote to some secret spiritual confidant. And probably the most shocking revelation in the book is that after Elvis finished making a movie in 1969, I think it was Charo, he claims, or the, the author claims to have a letter in which Elvis wrote to this spiritual confidant and said that Marlon Brando came over to his house and they were moving furniture and boxes from one of Elvis's houses to a new home. Now that should tip you off that this cannot possibly be true. But <laughs> oh my goodness. yeah, but during this time, the home was invaded by 10 men who abducted Marlon Brando and Elvis. Okay. Everybody still with me? So Marlon, wow. Marlon was locked up in his mansion, but the kidnappers kept Elvis overnight and tortured him all night long in myriad vicious ways and they go into detail in the book about this so the, the, here's the, the kicker Lin, the author Lindbergh Gary Lindbergh claims that although no one's ever heard about this before conveniently nobody's ever heard about this before but there are a lot of letters about it but he doesn't actually include any of the letters in the book because he says legal entanglements and copyright laws prevented him from doing so but he supposedly had the letters authenticated. So that's just more craziness surrounding the, the life and the, the myth and the man, Elvis Presley. 
Oh my goodness. I'm going to have to read that book out of sheer moral curiosity. <laughs> I know, right? Gosh. Amazing. It's not exactly related to kidnapping per se, but something I'd come across that I feel like a lot of people don't know about is in 1978, a, there was a uh, declassified memo that Elvis actually volunteered to inform for the yeah. FBI. Um, he volunteered to become an FBI informant um, and said in this memo, uh, <laughs> it was kind of crazy, um, but he kind of uh, was ranting about the Beatles and others. Oh, good God. Um, and he said, this is some of the problems. Uh, oh, he said, yes, the unkept appearances and suggested music of the Beatles were responsible for many of the problems the United States was having with young people. And this was according to an official FBI internal mm -hmm. memo. Um, and so they'd said that it happened in 1970. And I feel like that was kind of the beginning of um, all of the issues yeah. that he'd had um, towards the end of his life. Just this uh, paranoia, this kind of love-hate relationship with mm -hmm. law enforcement um, kept going on. And I, you know, and it just became the perfect storm for him, right? In so many ways, he's like dealing with these pressures of, I think, both real and imagined um, threats against his life, yeah. real and imagined um, kidnapping plots. You know, it's a, such a sad thing. It's such a sad thing um, because he's this larger than life person who I think just kind of, you know, things just went off the rails and he he lost control I think right. of who he was and it's again I just see it as a fan such a sad thing yeah well you know it's it's interesting all these years later and he's still this icon people are still making mm -hmm. movies about him and writing books about Absolutely. him and so say what you want about him like him or not like him he had something special that that still translates to today absolutely agree absolutely agree. thanks so much for being on the show Stephanie I really appreciate it thank you Thank you for having me. Catch the Stephanie and Stephanie Talk Tunes podcast from Pantheon Podcast Network at stephaniestalktunes.com or wherever you get your podcasts and pick up a copy of Chris Charles World's novel, Caught in a Trap, The Kidnapping of Elvis, wherever you buy books. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit! <laughs>